This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. For the first three quarters of 2008, Brazil's economy grew at a robust rate of more than 6%. As the world financial crisis takes its toll, signs have begun to appear that business in Brazil could run into trouble. The Bavespa stock market index has been volatile, and falling commodity prices have eroded export earnings. How will Brazil fare during the coming months? To answer this question, Knowledge at Wharton interviewed leaders from industries ranging from petrochemicals and telecommunications to banking, real estate, and manufacturing. In this special report, CEOs and other experts share their insights into what's in store for Brazil. Uh, our guest today is Alberto Duran, CEO of Mandivox Communications. Uh, Alberto, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, well, uh, to begin with, I wonder if we could uh, start by talking about the question that's on everyone's mind, which is, we have this big world financial crisis going on. Uh, what do you think is the impact on the Brazilian economy? That depends, short term or long term. On the short term, has been significant in the last two weeks. It's been incredible what has happened with the exchange rate rapidly changing. Some saying that is fully good, some saying that is a natural path because it was overvalued, the, the real 160, 155, in incredible numbers that we hadn't seen for so many years. Uh, let's have in mind that right before Lula was elected the, for the first term, the real got to four, four to the dollar. So it's been an incredible shift historically. Um, in the long run, I believe that Brazil is very solid. Why? Because I was actually talking the other day about this. I see Brazil, um, despite the developed world, which I'm more concerned about, has a rich population, a middle class, growing middle class, to manufacture, to produce, that produce leads production, incredibly aggressive, ambitious, and you have poorer people, which despite the social issues, also want to come back into a market, want to go into a market. And finally, we're seeing a lot of people, and I have a lot of that in my employees, um, desiring and looking for what are the steps that they have to take in order to increase, in order to make more money, in order to be able to work. Um, I travel around the world within my industry significantly. I go four or five times to Asia every year. I am in the United States every month. I am in Europe three or four times a year as well. And I see huge changes uh, in the, um, the non-so-called developed market, which are consisted with incredibly rich countries that haven't been able, through history, to tap into those opportunities for the population. Uh, so I, I am extremely positive about Brazil. Uh, obviously, you have to go through the shifts of a developing country, which is, is still very bound to market forces like everyone else. But you have the fundamentals, something that I don't really see in Europe, for example. Right. Uh, do you see any specific impact on the telecommunications sector? On the telecommunications sectors, it, it's, it's interesting because, um, in my case, we build networks and we have products for companies, voice and data. Um, 
we haven't seen any change whatsoever, completely the opposite. Uh, we haven't seen any change in the last month in sales. We haven't seen any change in the last month in any productivity whatsoever. Um, however, obviously, we have to see what's the impact of the banks. But yet we haven't seen any impact on credit, for example, short-term credit from the banks in Brazil. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, a lot of people are actually guessing that it may happen. Uh, but let's see with the changes that are happening in Europe during this week, and then this particularly this weekend with the market going up 11% yesterday alone, with Europe now going up 6%. Uh, it's, um, I believe that it could be a positive move to create the stability and to avoid damage for the midterm. For the mid-term. It is, of course, true and a very positive sign that the market has been going up in the U.S. as well as in Brazil and in Asia as well. Uh, do you see this as volatility or do you think that uh, things are back on the upswing again? The, the question for me would be, what's the, why the market is driving all this? Because in reality, you see, if you see the, the out of the market cap of every company, of the major companies, you're not in control even if you buy everything. So it is very interesting why that measures the health of an economy. is a completely psychological effect, which unfortunately, uh, to me, the big damage is that, uh, which was the very positive side a few years ago, which is starting to change and we have to see how to cope with that, is that um, all the managers of a company, board of directors, they are in charge of the long-run situation and health of a corporation are being measured mostly by a stock market. Uh, that's a, although it's very good and was supposed to be for the long run growth of the company and to align with the shareholders, the interests, in reality what I have seen is companies taking short-term decisions to create short-term mini bubbles or to please the expectations of bankers that in a lot of instances do not understand exactly what they're doing and they're just following the crowds. It's following market leaders that some you find that they actually go. I've seen it quite significantly. I've seen in my industry, I see the major telecom companies acting like banks. I don't see them acting like telecom companies. So uh, I benefit greatly from that. I don't know about society, but personally, I'm, I couldn't be more pleased because I actually compete with banks instead of competing with telecom companies. So in the telecom, I can probably try to be more innovative or actually look at a client. Uh, speaking of the telecom industry, uh, I, I had a question about one more aspect of the economy. As you know, uh, the, the, the real was fairly strong against the dollar, but as a result of this financial crisis, there has been a, a depreciation in, in, in value. For companies that import equipment from overseas, I understand uh, you, you uh, import some import. equipment from China. Uh, what, what kind of position does this put importers in Brazil? Uh, it's a good question, but it's not as relevant as I would think, because in reality my cost of, I manage the company in such a way that I try to maintain my cost and my industry is very local because most of my cost is actually digging the streets, is construction. And construction is cement, 
construction is PVC, construction is cables, construction is fiber optics, construction is people, local people, which is, I move today after nine years, I'm over a thousand people in the company, and uh, it, it's, it's incredible because you see that your cost structure, although equipment is uh, significant, most of my, my equipment and the high end of my equipment comes from overseas, the United States, obviously, China, and some from India. Uh, and um, but in reality, it only is only seven percent of my cost. So if the reality value is twenty five percent, I'm increasing very little, and I, I can absorb that with no sweat. Perhaps you could help put this what you just said into context for our listeners by explaining what exactly Mundivox is and and how how uh, your business model has evolved. Mundivox is nothing else than a telecom company which started in the year 2000. I came up with the idea in 99. And the year 2000 in March, I started the operations from the ground, uh, which builds network and provides data and telephone services for mainly corporations. Now we're obviously expanding. As of the last year, so the late last year, we started to expand also to residential as a separate unit of the company. But um, it's 90% based on corporations, growing at this year at 100% rate uh, on the revenue side, which basically our strategy is mainly to recreate infrastructure, modern infrastructure, to connect clients. Uh, the basis for this was that uh, at the time I started the company, everybody was talking about unbundling. So you don't need another infrastructure. Everybody will share infrastructure. But the fact of the matter is that unbundling didn't work. I said it at the time. Not too many people believe me. And obviously, to be a small company, I had to do what people did 70 years ago when the telecom industry, the telephone industry started, which is building infrastructure on a city-by-city basis. So I focus geographic growth. And I believe in a BCG framework, which is relative market share drives profitability. I use that consistently. I go to one neighborhood, I went to one city block, I build infrastructure there, I maximize sales, I move to another city block, uh, one by one, optimizing logistics, optimizing my capex, optimizing my people, performing better in terms of services. And so far, we're going to complete a decade, and um, it's obviously for the industry is very small compared to the huge banks that I compete with, but um, we can have the benefit of looking at the client at the eye and hopefully responding better than the, than the companies do and increasing the revenue. And interesting, I haven't spent one cent in marketing. But uh, that's really interesting because Brazil has such a large and growing telecommunications market. There are huge telephone companies, uh, Telefonica and others, uh, who are all quite active here. Could you help explain your competitive strategy and how how do you compete in this environment and, and how is it that you are able to grow at a time when other companies seem to be struggling? First, Brazil is divided into three major areas. So let's imagine, let's forget about Brazil, let's think about three different countries. The South, which is dominated by a company called Brazil Telecom. The North, 
the northeast and Rio area and going to Minas Gerais and the Amazon, which would be a company called Telemar, which is the company that compete here, and Telefonica in the state of Sao Paulo. Those companies bought the rights and they are a natural monopoly. It used to be the Telebras system. On top of that, you had long-distance deregulation, where you have one company that was allowed, which is Embratel, going everywhere, but did not have local networks. And the fact of the matter, that's where I saw. What, what I saw was, okay, the monopolies will continue to be monopolies. They're going to act like better monopolies, but they will continue to have that. You're talking decades of experience. And you have a long-distance network, which is owned by uh, Carlos Slim and Telmex, which is coming and is going to have to build networks, and it's not going to be able to do it everywhere. So let's find niches. At the beginning, everybody told me, go to Sao Paulo, which is the biggest country in Brazil. And I said, well, why Sao Paulo if I can go to a second city, which is a little bit more than half of the size, huge opportunities, and the fact of the matter is that it takes a long time to build infrastructure. And it's not a question of money, because you can have all the money in the world, which I didn't have at all at the time, and, um, but you can, the fact is that the government will never allow you to break and destroy the whole city at once, because you have money. You have to do it by trenches, which means maybe I have an opportunity to start small. And um, obviously the financial crisis of the year 2001-2002 and the telecom meltdown and internet meltdown, I was hit right in that. Um, I went bankrupt virtually three times and I sold my house to be able to fund the company. And um, that's exactly the approach that I took. Amazingly is that I couldn't believe that these companies were not going to actually look at me for such a long time. And it's probably a big question that I still have. But the fact of the matter is that we continue growing. They grow, but uh, we focus on a niche, which is a small and medium-sized companies, which is very difficult for a big corporation to focus in. Uh, and the main reason for that is the small and medium-sized company thinks like a big company, demands like a big company, but doesn't have the revenue to be attractive to the to an area in within a major corporation, I had an experience in '95 uh, when I was working at the time for Bain Company, and I was working with AT&T in New Jersey as one of my um, clients. And Bill Catucci, who was the CFO of AT&T at the time in New Jersey, he came and he acquired a company called Unitel in Canada, which turned out to be AT&T Canada. I went with him, and I became the small and medium-sized business director for a year in Toronto. And gave me the basis to understand that every time that I tried to create a strategy, and I used every tool, and I followed what I believed was the logic to attack small and medium-sized businesses, the answer was always from my boss, who was the head of business, saying, you're fighting too much with little crowds, and you should send them to residential. Come with me, play golf, and introduce you to six people, and you'll have a much better bonus at the end of the year. You're going to fill the pipe. So it gave me an understanding of how these companies think. 
when I worked with deregulation, because the year before I had spent time working with the Mexican government on how to deregulate the market privatization, that led into the privatization of Telmex, I spent two months in Mexico City trying to think about possible ways of how to deregulate, working with the government of Serrapuche, Salinas at the time. I was a kid out of Warden, and, uh, but I actually saw how the forces influenced, influenced the, the government of Mexico, either forces by the industry, either interest groups, either the population of Mexico and either the geography of Mexico. And that's how I came out with the with the idea of how to build a micro but full-size company, telecom company, that builds infrastructure, goes to buildings, puts fiber, builds the infrastructure in the building because otherwise I cannot connect clients, with newer technology instead of legacy technology, but having my own technicians because otherwise I lose contact with the client. I don't understand the infrastructure. If problems happen, which always happen, I will not have the knowledge on where to fix or how to fix. I will not depend, and that to me was very important, on third parties which could work for the financial side of a big telecom company because it gets rid of a lot of problems. I never saw starting a company without understanding the problems. And I just followed the methodology. I vertically integrate the company. You went from being a consultant to becoming an entrepreneur. Yes. Uh, what did you have to learn to make that transition, and how did you learn it? Um, I remember a, a partner at Bain & Company taught me a very big lesson. He came and said, look, the difference of being a consultant and being a manager in a big company is that we have the benefit of not dealing with normal people. We deal with usually very interesting, highly educated, self-motivated, making good money, thinking big terms. You're not going to be dealing and struggling with the difficulties that a normal people, a normal worker works and lives every day the influences of their family. So uh, there, w there is a very big, soft, and I believe it's very hard and very important approach of how people live. Because at the end of the day, to be an entrepreneur is you end up providing a lot of jobs, more or less. But you have to think of the reactions of your employees. And it's, we were very lucky of going to high education, dealing with very interesting people around the world, but we forget very often, the real people, the majority of the people in the streets. And that's a, that's a disease that all of us, they come from great schools, may face and try to solve. Because the real growth and the real um, creation, let's talk creation, I'm not talking about creating money, but I'm talking creating things that uh, this world still needs. And I benefit also economically through that as a consequence is driving people. And at the end of the day, that's what it was all about. Uh, after nine years, we're leading a, a thousand, close to a thousand people at this moment. Um, I don't see my company stopping until we drive a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. 
maybe I'll do it, maybe I'll be in charge, maybe not. But what's interesting is having the model that is going to continue growing on that, hopefully. And we'll find a way to continue um, motivating people to work hard, to make more money, and to bring more money and knowledge, hopefully, to their kids. What are going to be your top two or three priorities for the next couple of years? The first priority that I have, believe me or not, uh, it's um, creating new management in the company. Uh, the, biggest, the, the biggest problem I find is actually to create middle management because uh, I realize, go back to the, I realize that their logic, they're extremely smart, they're technically in their field extremely capable, but um, the view of the world and the view of what is right and what is wrong may be sometimes shifted. The diversity, in, in, to me, is not in the race, is in the way you think. And, and, and that's where the biggest focus and the biggest um, challenge relies. Because without those managers, we cannot grow to have 10,000 people. I need more managers to move into different areas, to lead more people and to influence those people, hopefully, like I would. Because it got to the size that I don't know them. It's interesting that I had an interesting meeting with Craig Barrett from Intel um, seven years ago where everything was going down Intel was looking at companies obviously I was not a so-called sexy company for Intel at the time because I was infrastructure based I was not going to help Intel but uh, everybody was asking questions about money and capital and Intel capital I was struggling to survive at that time but I did not answer the question I came and I said to them uh, how did you turn the company to a multi-thousands of employees, which to me, sometimes, and most of the times, represents that you have grown. Because that's what I'm concerned about, the growth. Growth, to me, is everything. Economic growth, healthy growth, is everything. That's how companies become rich. And, and that's how countries become richer. Uh, and uh, he came and said a very interesting question, because the answer is culture depends on the culture and, and that's when I started going back to my books and my management theories out of Wharton in college and just saying okay that's what it meant I started paying more attention to the soft issues which to me are a lot more important and to psychology than the tools that I had learned that led the beginning of my career so what are some of the things you're doing to shape the kind of culture that you want at Monday Box? Um, it's very difficult to structure a program when you're growing at 100%. Because at 100%, the fact of the matter is that we change every year. We change. Everything, every system, every procedure, everything that we had the past, a year ago, is basically non-existent today. So we have to constantly be changing. And to constantly change, the biggest problem in, that I find is that people think on their boxes, but they forget to share this, those boxes and influence with those perspectives, right or wrong, the others, for the company to grow as a whole. So to me, is constantly being together. Being in the field, 
twice a week I am with my people and I go to visit every construction site and I take my supervisors to lunch, not my directors, I take the supervisors. I go with employees and I go to a site, maybe for an hour, maybe for two, to understand their lives and to talk to them as much as possible. So the one thing that we're doing is we're trying to create some retreats which is difficult to have, and some parties where you share on a day-to-day -day basis. We talk about the business, very little about the personal lives, uh, but in reference we talk of the way they think of how things go. Up. And if I believe that there is a mistake or I have a different opinion, I go and I tell them. And I tell them it's not your right to criticize me. You have to criticize me. But please, bring me two pieces of data. Because only with two pieces of data to justify your sentence is that you're going to be able to tell me, okay, I think mathematically, and I can I try to understand what I'm trying to say. Because it's very easy to criticize. So obviously, everybody can be critic. But um, positive criticism is what this is all about. It's very, very interesting what you're doing. What are some of the risks that keep you up at night? The, the biggest one is for having an accident or having security problems. The fact of the matter is that, for example, we had an episode five months ago in Leblon, in Leblon, uh, three o'clock in the morning, going to passing fiber optics, and they were probably making too much noise, and suddenly someone came down with two machine guns and said, you stop now, otherwise I'll kill you. That is something that really concerns me because if, God forbid, if there is a problem on security, that is something that um, is way beyond economics to deal with. And companies have to learn how to deal with it and people have to learn. So we're putting more and more security into the company. We're growing, so we have to structure all that uh, within the company. The other is losing the best talent. But um, that has become easier because I always, I, I try not to be greed as much as I can. And um, I pay my people better than the competition. It's very simple. They work harder, but they pay. I pay much better. And uh, you, it's not easy to work in my company because growing 100%, you're not going to have an easy day. Uh, so... You have to really want it badly. But if you want it badly, I don't care where you come from. I don't care if you're a man, a woman, I don't care about anything. All I care is that you're creating value. Very simple. And the way we define creating value is doing what we decide together to do. There is a direction. It's a little bit like an army, but it's an army where you can actually go and you have to say. If you don't say... Everybody walks basically, literally, over you, and we're just going to get things done because we have clients to connect, and we have to be much better than the rest. So it's incredibly aggressive, um, and we make lots of mistakes. But I believe as a basis, theoretical basis, that who wins is the one who corrects the mistakes faster. In, in your entire career, whether as a consultant or as an entrepreneur, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made? What did you learn from it? Underestimating people. It's very easy. 
you become sometimes too arrogant. And you have the tendency to underestimate people. Companies are people. They're leaders. Very smart. I never underestimate my competition. I never underestimate my employees. I never underestimate anybody. And, um, and I'm very clear about it. I, I believe that we live in a world based on people, not based on markets, not based on markets is a consequence of people. So um, everything, the financial, uh, by theory to me, although I'm a finance major, uh, finance to me is a consequence, which sometimes becomes a leading edge, but should not be, unless you're a bank, the purpose. It should be a measurement. You're absolutely right. Uh, usually for an entrepreneur, uh, when they think about the future, at some point in the future there is an exit strategy, sometimes through an IPO, in other cases by being acquired. Uh, do you give any thought to such issues today? And, and if so, what are I, the I did at the very beginning. At the very beginning, when I, be, when I, when I started Mundivox, I raised... I had some reputation, and uh, I raised easy money at the beginning with investors, which I still have. I sold 27% of the company. I kept the rest. Um, everybody said, why don't you sell more? And I said, no. It's minority investors, and I need to be in control. It's a company that doesn't exist. So I cannot let bankers or investors to decide unless you're on the ground. And if I'm not the right guy, I have to go away, and someone else will take the command. But there's got to be a leader. It's a family corporation owned by shareholders, period. It's nothing else than a family corporation. Uh, some people think that all companies are families in some way or another. Uh, but uh, basically, it's, it's very interesting when you see the capital structure of a company leading results. Uh, it's very damaging, very, very damaging. Um, so the strategy starts being driven by financial results. And um, an exit, it's a way for entrepreneurs to get rich or to continue poor. Because uh, it, I have seen a lot of people creating great companies that because of the... In a lot of cases, they didn't have a choice. They basically, they had to sell the majority and become basically an employee with an upside. But then you change the roles. You become an employee. You don't become the, the entrepreneur. To be an entrepreneur is to have the biggest burden of the, of the risk. And uh, it's very destructive to think about exit strategies. You have to think about creation value for the enterprise. Uh, although everybody wants to make money, a successful company should provide you a good living and should provide you a way of living just like you were working for a good company. But it's not only the money that should lead you to become an entrepreneur, because that is not what it's all about. To be an entrepreneur is to be in creation. You're an architect. You're creating. You're leading people. Hopefully, in the long run, is going to bring you profit and wealth. I don't know what I would do with that afterwards, which is a bigger problem then. But um, to me, exit is driven by until when can we lead the growth of the company? 
what are the industry structures that are going to, we're going to face now that we're growing and we're becoming more significant um, in order to be able to define the growth of the of the of the of the of the company and what it will be our role within the industry that's what to me is going to define the exit and IPO is very distracting a lot of people that I talk about IPOs is very nice at the beginning but it's very distractive so you have to be very well structured and you have to have in my opinion a company extremely well organized to be able to cope with the distraction and to be able to cope with the problems because your stock can go up five times and it will go down ten times and is 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 incredible and, and very fast you shouldn't and, and, and so it's I, I see companies that they went recently into IPOs stopping their strategy because investors are basically saying keep the cash stop spending Okay, nobody's asking, okay, what are the opportunities in the market? Are the opportunities still reliable? Is the market still demanding products? Are they still paying? Are you having default? Are you able to finance the company? How long your cash is going to last? No, no, they're just basically saying, give me back the cash or keep the cash. Destroys completely your strategy. And so that's why I'm very... I, I don't like to think about exit, although obviously I think about how attractive and how right my company is within the industry. Uh, and I, honestly, I mean, I could probably today sell my company in, in, incredibly well. A year and a half ago, one of these major companies came. And um, what would I do? And, and this major company came and said, look, we can buy you now, but the fact of the matter is we're not going to be able to run the growth like you're running it because it will be diluted in such a way within our organization that I don't know if that's what you want. It, those are very interesting questions. Obviously, I mean, we have the personal side, but I have the life I want, so. So one, one last question. How do you define success? You have to look at yourself. The success is different to everybody. It's like truth. That depends with the glass that you're looking at. Dante already said that a long time ago. Um, my definition of success is growth at this moment. It's seeing people being influenced and having the life I always wanted to have. Uh, it's a combination. Uh, having time to spend with my family as well. Having and, and trying to influence that on other people to have 25 years of growth. I don't want to have five years of stellar growth. That to me is success, seeing something being realized and seeing something continuing to be realized. And more and more the success is having something being realized by them, my directors, my employees, and not by me. Because if that's a big shift that I had to do two years ago, that if it continues based on me looking at every client, I'm not building a company. I'm being a consultant. And it's... So it's my definition of success. Economics is nice, it's part of life, but uh, it's not my driving force, obviously. I believe that I'm creating a lot of wealth, but it's just a measurement to fulfill the rest. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.